Chapter Thirteen of Travels with a Donkey in the Cévennes by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patrick Wallace. In the Valley of the Tarn. A new road leads from Pont de Montvert to Florac by the Valley of the Tarn. A smooth, sandy ledge, it runs about halfway between the summit of the cliffs and the river in the bottom of the valley, and I went in and out as I followed it from bays of shadow into promontories of afternoon sun. This was a pass like that of Killicranky, a deep, turning gully in the hills, with the tarn making a wonderful hoarse uproar far below, and craggy summits standing in the sunshine high above. A thin fringe of ash-trees ran about the hilltops, like ivy on a ruin. But on the lower slopes, and far up every glen, the Spanish chestnut-trees stood each four square to heaven under its tented foliage. Some were planted, each on its own terrace no larger than a bed. Some, trusting in their roots, found strength to grow and prosper, and be straight and large upon the rapid slopes of the valley. Others, where there was a margin to the river, stood marshalled in a line and mighty, like cedars of Lebanon. Yet even where they grew most thickly they were not to be thought of as a wood, but as a herd of stalwart individuals, and the dome of each tree stood forth separate and large, and, as it were, a little hill from among the domes of its companions. They gave forth a faint sweet perfume which pervaded the air of the afternoon. Autumn had put tints of gold and tarnish in the green, and the sun so shone through and kindled the broad foliage that each chestnut was relieved against another, not in shadow, but in light. A humble sketcher here laid down his pencil in despair. I wish I could convey a notion of the growth of these noble trees, of how they strike out boughs like the oak, and trail sprays of drooping foliage like the willow, of how they stand on upright fluted columns like the pillars of a church, or like the olive, from the most shattered hole, can put out smooth and youthful shoots, and begin a new life upon the ruins of the old. Thus they partake of the nature of many different trees, and even their prickly topknots, seen near at hand against the sky, have a certain palm-like air that impresses the imagination. But their individuality, although compounded of so many elements, is but the richer and the more original and to look down upon a level filled with these knolls of foliage, or to see a clan of old unconquerable chestnuts cluster, like herded elephants, upon the spur of a mountain, is to rise to higher thoughts of the powers that are in nature. Between Modestine's laggard humour and the beauty of the scene, we made little progress all that afternoon, and at last finding the sun, although still far from setting, was already beginning to desert the narrow valley of the Tarn, I began to cast about for a place to camp in. This was not easy to find. The terraces were too narrow, and the ground where it was unterraced was usually too steep for a man to lie upon. I should have slipped all night and awakened towards morning with my feet on my head in the river. After perhaps a mile, I saw some sixty feet above the road a little plateau large enough to hold my sack, and securely parapeted by the trunk of an aged and enormous chestnut. Thither, with infinite trouble, I goaded and kicked the reluctant Modestine, and there I hastened to unload her. There was only room for myself upon the plateau, 
and I had to go nearly as high again before I found so much as standing-room for the ass. It was on a heap of rolling stones, on an artificial terrace, certainly not five feet square in all. Here I tied her to a chestnut, and having given her corn and bread and made a pile of chestnut leaves, of which I found her greedy, I descended once more to my own encampment. The position was unpleasantly exposed. One or two carts went by upon the road, and as long as daylight lasted I concealed myself, for all the world like a hunted camisard, behind my fortification of vast chestnut trunk. For I was passionately afraid of discovery, and the visit of jocular persons in the night. Moreover, I saw that I must be early awake, for these chestnut gardens had been the scene of industry no further gone than on the day before. The slope was strewn with lopped branches, and here and there a great package of leaves was propped against a trunk, for even the leaves are serviceable, and the peasants use them in winter by way of fodder for their animals. I picked a meal in fear and trembling, half lying down to hide myself from the road, and I dare say I was as much concerned as if I had been a scout from Joanny's band above upon the Lozère, or from Salomon's across the town, in the old times of psalm-singing and blood. Or indeed, perhaps more, for the Camisard had a remarkable confidence in God, and a tale comes back into my memory of how the Count of Givaudan, riding with a party of dragoons and a notary at his saddle-bow to enforce the oath of fidelity in all the country hamlets, entered a valley in the woods and found Cavalier and his men at dinner, gaily seated on the grass, and their hats crowned with box-tree garlands, while fifteen women washed their linen in the stream. Such was a field festival in 1703. At that date Antony Watteau would be painting similar subjects. This was a very different camp from that of the night before in the cool and silent pine woods. It was warm and even stifling in the valley. The shrill song of frogs, like the tremolo note of a whistle with a pea in it, rang up from the riverside before the sun was down. In the growing dusk faint rustlings began to run to and fro among the fallen leaves. From time to time a faint chirping or cheeping noise would fall upon my ear, and from time to time I thought I could see the movement of something swift and indistinct between the chestnuts. A profusion of large ants swarmed upon the ground. Bats whisked by and mosquitoes droned overhead. The long boughs with their bunches of leaves hung against the sky like garlands, and those immediately above and around me had somewhat the air of a trellis which should have been wrecked and half overthrown in a gale of wind. Sleep for a long time fled my eyelids, and just as I was beginning to feel quiet stealing over my limbs and settling densely on my mind, a noise at my head startled me broad awake again, and, I will frankly confess it, brought my heart into my mouth. It was such a noise as a person would make scratching loudly with a fingernail. It came from under the knapsack which served me for a pillow, and it was thrice repeated before I had time to sit up and turn about. Nothing was to be seen, nothing more was to be heard, but a few of these mysterious rustlings far and near, and the ceaseless accompaniment of the river and the frogs. I learned next day that the chestnut gardens are infested by rats. Rustling, chirping, and scraping were probably all due to these. But the puzzle for the moment was insoluble, and I had to compose myself for sleep as best I could, in wondering uncertainty about my neighbours. I was wakened in the grey of the morning, Monday 30th September, 
by the sound of footsteps not far off upon the stones, and opening my eyes I beheld a peasant going by among the chestnuts, by a footpath that I had not hitherto observed. He turned his head neither to the right nor to the left, and disappeared in a few strides among the foliage. Here was an escape, but it was plainly more than time to be moving. The peasantry were abroad, scarce less terrible to me in my nondescript position than the soldiers of Captain Poole to an undaunted cabizarre. I fed Modestine with what haste I could, but as I was returning to my sack I saw a man and a boy come down the hillside in a direction crossing mine. They unintelligibly hailed me, and I replied with inarticulate but cheerful sounds, and hurried forward to get into my gaiters. The pair, who seemed to be father and son, came slowly up to the plateau, and stood close beside me for some time, in silence. The bed was open, and I saw with regret my revolver lying patently disclosed on the blue wool. At last, after they had looked me all over, and the silence had grown laughably embarrassing, the man demanded in what seemed unfriendly tones, "'You have slept here?' "'Yes,' said I, "'as you see.' "'Why?' he asked. "'My faith,' I answered lightly, "'I was tired.' He next inquired where I was going, and what I had had for dinner, and then, without the least transition, "'C'est bien,' he added, "'come along.' And he and his son, without another word, turned off to the next chestnut tree but one, which they set to pruning. The thing had passed off more simply than I hoped. He was a grave, respectable man, and his unfriendly voice did not imply that he thought he was speaking to a criminal, but merely to an inferior. I was soon on the road, nibbling a cake of chocolate, and seriously occupied with a case of conscience. Was I to pay for my night's lodging? I had slept ill. The bed was full of fleas in the shape of ants. There was no water in the room. The very dawn had neglected to call me in the morning. I might have missed a train had there been any in the neighbourhood to catch. Clearly, I was dissatisfied with my entertainment, and I decided I should not pay unless I met a beggar. The valet looked even lovelier by morning, and soon the road descended to the level of the river. Here, in a place where many straight and prosperous chestnuts stood together, making an aisle upon a swarded terrace, I made my morning toilette in the water of the tarn. It was marvellously clear, thrillingly cool. The soapsuds disappeared as if by magic in the swift current, and the white boulders gave one a model for cleanliness. To wash in one of God's rivers in the open air seems to me a sort of cheerful solemnity or semi-pagan act of worship. To dabble among dishes in a bedroom may perhaps make clean the body, but the imagination takes no share in such a cleansing. I went on with a light and peaceful heart, and sang psalms to the spiritual ear as I advanced. Suddenly up came an old woman who point-blank demanded alms. Good, thought I, here comes the waiter with the bill. And I paid for my night's lodging on the spot. Take it how you please, but this was the first and the last beggar that I met with during all my tour. A step or two farther I was overtaken by an old man in a brown nightcap, clear-eyed, weather-beaten, with a faint, excited smile. A little girl followed him, driving two sheep and a goat, but she kept in our wake while the old man walked beside me and talked about the morning and the valley. It was not much past six and for healthy people who have slept enough that is an hour of expansion and of open and trustful talk. 
Connaissez-vous le seigneur? he said at length. I asked him what seigneur he meant, but he only repeated the question with more emphasis and a look in his eyes denoting hope and interest. Ah, said I, pointing upwards, I understand you now. Yes, I know him. He is the best of acquaintances. The old man said he was delighted. Hold, he added, striking his bosom. It makes me happy here. There were a few who knew the Lord in these valleys, he went on to tell me, not many, but a few. Many are called, he quoted, and few chosen. My father, said I, it is not easy to say who know the Lord, and it is none of our business. Protestants and Catholics, and even those who worship stones, may know him and be known by him, for he has made all. I did not know I was so good a preacher. The old man assured me he thought as I did, and repeated his expressions of pleasure at meeting me. We are so few, he said. They call us Moravians here, but down in the department of Gare, where there are also a good number, they are called Darbists, after an English pastor. I began to understand that I was figuring, in questionable taste, as a member of some sect to me unknown, but I was more pleased with the pleasure of my companion than embarrassed by my own equivocal position. Indeed, I can see no dishonesty in not avowing a difference, and especially in these high matters where we have all a sufficient assurance that, whoever may be in the wrong, we ourselves are not completely in the right. The truth is much talked about, but this old man in a brown nightcap showed himself so simple, sweet, and friendly, that I am not unwilling to profess myself his convert. He was, as a matter of fact, a Plymouth brother. Of what that involves in the way of doctrine I have no idea, nor the time to inform myself. But I know right well that we are all embarked upon a troublesome world, the children of one father striving in many essential points to do and to become the same. And although it was somewhat in a mistake that he shook hands with me so often and showed himself so ready to receive my words, that was a mistake of the truth-finding sort. For charity begins blindfold, and only through a series of similar misapprehensions rises at length into a settled principle of love and patience and a firm belief in all our fellow-men. If I deceived this good old man, in the like manner I would willingly go on to deceive others, and if ever at length, out of our separate and sad ways, we should all come together into one common house, I have a hope to which I cling dearly, that my mountain Plymouth brother will hasten to shake hands with me again. Thus, talking like Christian and faithful by the way, he and I came down upon a hamlet by the town. It was but a humble place called La Vernade, with less than a dozen houses and a Protestant chapel on a knoll. Here he dwelt, and here at the inn I ordered my breakfast. The inn was kept by an agreeable young man, a stone-breaker on the road, and his sister, a pretty and engaging girl. The village schoolmaster dropped in to speak with the stranger, and these were all Protestants, a fact which pleased me more than I should have expected, and what pleased me still more, they seemed all upright and simple people. The Plymouth brother hung round me with a sort of yearning interest, and returned at least thrice to make sure I was enjoying my meal. His behaviour touched me deeply at the time, and even now moves me in recollection. He feared to intrude, 
but he would not willingly forego one moment of my society, and he seemed never weary of shaking me by the hand. When all the rest had drifted off to their day's work, I sat for near half an hour with the young mistress of the house, who talked pleasantly over her seam of the chestnut harvest, and the beauties of the town, and old family affections broken up when young folk go from home, yet still subsisting. Hers, I am sure, was a sweet nature, with a country plainness and much delicacy underneath, and he who takes her to his heart will doubtless be a fortunate young man. The valley below La Vernède pleased me more and more as I went forward. Now the hills approached from either hand, naked and crumbling, and walled in the river between cliffs, and now the valley widened and became green. The road led me past the old castle of Miral on a steep, past a battlemented monastery, long since broken up and turned into a church and parsonage, and past a cluster of black roofs, the village of Cocures, sitting among vineyards and meadows and orchards thick with red apples, and where along the highway they were knocking down walnuts from the roadside trees and gathering them in sacks and baskets. The hills, however much the vale might open, were still tall and bare, with cliffy battlements and here and there a pointed summit, and the town still rattled through the stones with a mountain noise. I had been led by bagmen of a picturesque turn of mind to expect a horrific country after the heart of Byron, but to my Scottish eyes it seemed smiling and plentiful, as the weather still gave an impression of high summer to my Scottish body. Although the chestnuts were already picked out by the autumn, and the poplars that here began to mingle with them had turned into pale gold against the approach of winter, there was something in this landscape, smiling although wild, that explained to me the spirit of the southern covenanters. Those who took to the hills for conscience' sake in Scotland had all gloomy and bedeviled thoughts, for once that they received God's comfort, they would be twice engaged with Satan. But the Camisards had only bright and supporting visions. They dealt much more in blood, both given and taken. Yet I find no obsession of the evil one in their records. With a light conscience they pursued their life in these rough times and circumstances. The soul of Séguier, let us not forget, was like a garden. They knew they were on God's side, with a knowledge that has no parallel among the Scots, for the Scots, although they might be certain of the cause, could never rest confident of the person. We flew, says one old Camisard, when we heard the sound of psalm singing. We flew as if with wings. We felt within us an animating ardour, a transporting desire. The feeling cannot be expressed in words. It is a thing that must have been experienced to be understood. However weary we might be, we thought no more of our weariness, and grew light so soon as the psalms fell upon our ears. The valley of the town and the people whom I met at La Vernède not only explained to me this passage, but the twenty years of suffering which those who were so stiff and so bloody when once they betook themselves to war, endured with the meekness of children and the constancy of saints and peasants. End of chapter 13